What can we do? Can we build a wall? Welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, and uh, we got a, a special episode uh, here. I'm being joined by uh, Herman Lopez, uh, one of our, our top reporters here at, uh, at Vox.com. Uh, a lot of people have been asking over the past couple months in the Facebook group and elsewhere for us to talk about the opioid epidemic issue. I've sort of wanted to do it, but but really all I would be doing is sort of loosely paraphrasing uh, stuff Herman has, has written that, that I've read. So that'd be good to, to have him on uh, and, and talk about it while while the team is a little short-staffed on, on people's summer vacations, uh, we can uh, pop some pills and uh, enjoy ourselves. <laughs> let's, let's not pop some pills. No, no pills. <laughs> Enough people are doing that. You know, a first thing to, to think about here, just to, to kind of set this up, is like, what kind of scale of a problem are we talking about? I was I was on, on vacation last weekend. I was, uh, you know, driving around in a rental car. So we had the Sirius XM satellite radio, and I, I was listening to my, my 90s alternative rock station, uh, which I, I wouldn't normally do. And it, it was a reminder, like, half the songs are about heroin overdoses right. from the early 90s. And so there was certainly, like, a cultural perception that, like, there was a huge problem at that time. And then earlier in the in the 70s, coming out of Vietnam, there was, like, a big wave of, of heroin usage. There's a certain cyclical element to these things, like, they come and go. But what we're looking at now is is actually much bigger, right? Right. So yeah, this is just just to get like the, the top number out is that this is the deadliest drug overdose epidemic in recorded history. So in, in America anyway. So it seems like every year we get another shocking statistic about it. So like in 2015, the statistic was the drug overdoses now kill more people than HIV AIDS did at its peak. So if you cared about HIV AIDS, you should probably care about drug overdoses killing this many people. The latest one from 2016, and this is based on like preliminary data, but it's now that uh, drug overdoses killed more people than the entire war in Vietnam. I mean, you can frame it different ways, but the the general point is that Drug overdoses are killing a lot of people. The latest official estimate is from 2015. 52,000 people died of drug overdoses. About two-thirds were related to opioids, meaning painkillers and heroin and fentanyl and, and those kinds of drugs. So it's a, it's a lot of people dying. And and also, there, there have been forecasts coming out that for the next 10 years, how many people are going to die. And um, the worst estimates suggest 650,000 people That's will die in the next 10 years. And the average of all the the forecasts, which is, this is something Stat News did, so we should give them some credit for it. But the, the average is 500,000. That's that's still a lot. And this is in the face of what's really an improved medical technology for treating drug overdoses, right? I mean, compared to 20 or, or 40 years ago, we have more people dying, but actually it would be even more just based purely on, on the usage. Right. Obviously, the question, we'll probably get into this, but how accessible this better treatment is is a huge problem, but we do generally have better understanding of addiction. There's less stigma attached to addiction. It's less about uh, this is a moral failure, more about a, this is a legitimate medical issue. And we have medications that like they reduce mortality of opioid addiction by half. So these are like methadone, buprenorphine, um, the brand name Suboxone, and, and naltroxone, which is brand name Vivitrol. But these drugs seriously help people, and they're not anywhere near as accessible as they should be in the U.S., but they're more accepted by doctors and more accessible than they were in the so past. So we're talking about basically a, a tremendous increase in the sort of 
population of users right. relative to what we had. It's a much more uh, mainstream. I, I don't know how else how else you would put it than sort of previous waves of of drug addiction. Yeah, it's definitely right. I mean, there are some states that are definitely more afflicted than others, like West Virginia, Ohio, Pennsylvania, New Hampshire, and New Mexico are some of the ones that if you look at the numbers, these are some of the worst states. New Mexico is a bit of an outlier there, but in general, it's like Rust Belt states. And this is a, as advocates will always tell me, it's like a 50-state problem. If you look at survey data, most Americans will say they know somebody affected by this issue, like somebody who is either suffering from opioid addiction or has died from a drug overdose. So it's it's clearly become a very big mainstream issue, and there are a lot of people dying. Okay, so where does this come from? I mean, I recall vaguely, I'm not like a drug policy guy, but I recall having formed the opinion at some point in the dusty past that America was too harsh and puritanical about drugs in general, which I think is what most younger people believe, that people should probably be able to get marijuana. And I thought that one sort of penumbra of America's like moral panic about drugs was that it was too hard for people to get useful pain medical treatment. That was, I don't know who told me that, but this was definitely like a fact implanted in my head. Like, war on drugs mania. Point A, we have nonviolent offenders in jail for no good reason. Point B, we have this pretty, not that unhealthy drug, marijuana, being treated much more restrictively than alcohol. Point three, like doctors don't want to give people pain medicine because they'll be treated like they're drug dealers. Right. So yeah, in the 80s and particularly the 90s is when it really started is uh, doctors were under a lot of pressure to treat pain as a serious medical problem. And it is a a serious medical problem that affects a lot of people. I think the latest Institute of Medicine report found that it's about 100 million adults suffer from some level of chronic pain. I mean, this isn't like necessarily debilitating chronic pain for all those 100 million, but it's that's a lot of people suffering right. from chronic pain. So it's a serious issue. And then there was this campaign going on that you should take it more seriously. And pharmaceutical companies stepped in and they were like, hey, we're producing these new nice opioids. They're safer, more effective. At least that's what they said. And they kind of like convinced doctors to go ahead. They, they told them that they're afflicted. The, the term they use is opiophobia, that, sort of suggesting that they're like irrationally scared of using opioids. And they really pushed them hard. They, there were some studies. There was one one recent paper that came out looking at this five-sentence study that came out in the 80s. And that five-sentence study, which had no hint about its methodology, because, I mean, it was five sentences, it's it's hard to see how good of a study that can be. But it basically suggested that most people on opioids will not get addicted, like only a very, very small fraction of them will. And pharmaceutical companies really ran with this, really pushed this hard on doctors and, and said, look, people aren't going to get addicted to our drugs. You should give them more easily to patients. And the idea was that these opioid drugs or, or opiates had been used in medicinal settings a hundred right. years ago, something like that, right? I mean, if you watch uh, Deadwood, uh, she's got a, a prescription right. for, I don't know what, it's opium or, or morphine or, or something like that. And was it in the 20s that legal restrictions started coming? It was like, in 1914, uh, yeah. around then, yeah. They started really ramping up the condition, uh, right. the restrictions. We sort of had had this, some version of this cycle where people had been like, hey, you could take these drugs and you'll feel better. And then a lot of people were addicted. And then Congress right. was like, no, <laughs> actually, this is dangerous. Right. And so then starting in the in the 80s and, and 90s, they developed new pills right. that, said that, that were not going to have these problems. 
The big one is Oxycontin, which came out in the mid-1990s, and they really pushed these drugs hard. One thing that's interesting about this is that a way of framing this historically is that there has always been this search for the safe, quote-unquote, safe opioid. Uh, heroin actually was invented because they were looking for the safe opioid, and we know how that turned out. It did not turn out to be the very safe opioid. So so what was the original unsafe? Was just opium? Is yeah, that- it was just opium, and from then they, they made morphine, and morphine was really what launched it as like, a, a this is an important medical device. But in general, what we've seen time and time again is when they put out these new opioids, they do not turn out to be safer or more effective. Uh, Purdue Pharma, the company who made OxyContin, has already paid like hundreds of millions of dollars of fines because their marketing was deemed misleading, ineffective, and, and one other claims that it was safe was not good. And I should say that this is hundreds of millions of dollars of fines, probably a lot of money to you and me, not that much money to Purdue Pharma. So in the end, not that big of a deal. So what what was supposed to be safer about OxyContin? What was the the pitch? The pitch is that they changed something in the formula, so it's sort of like slow releasing and and sort of thing. It's like wonky stuff that just like it's going to be harder to abuse is the argument because it won't take effect as quickly as like say hair if you inject heroin will. So it's going to be harder to abuse. I mean, in the end, the the problem was that people would just crush these pills and snort them or inject them or do all sorts of other things. And then they were pretty much not exactly the same chemical composition as heroin, but pretty damn close. So people started abusing them, misusing them. Um, some people just took them regularly and they just took too much. And, and even that gave them a high and eventually might lead them to overdose and, and whatnot. And also there's the safety issue, which is like, how likely are you to overdose on this? But then there's the dependency issue, which is how likely are you to sort of become addicted, right? right? As we start talking about like the, the different sort of variants of opioids that people are using, the fact that those aren't the same thing you know, becomes relevant, right? So, like, it may be that the OxyContin pills are not, like, a super fun recreational drug for most people or pose all that great an overdose risk. But when you're using them for chronic pain management, you're still generating a lot of baseline addiction, right? right? Which gets people on a road to trouble. Right. So there's there's two concepts. One is, like, dependence, which is, I mean, everyone who takes opioids over time, well, I shouldn't say everyone. Some people do not have dependence literally at all, which is weird. But most people who take opioids over time will become dependent, meaning that when they stop taking the pill, they'll have withdrawal. That doesn't necessarily mean you're addicted. Addicted means that that dependence is actually like hurting you in some way. Like uh, it's, it's hurting your life outcomes, your social outcomes and whatnot. But yeah, in general, when you up the amount of people taking these drugs, which is what happened. By 2012, there were enough pills out there for every adult in America to get their hands on a bottle of pills. That's a lot of drugs. So once you up it by that much, even if only a small percent of people are getting addicted, if you're giving tens of millions of people pills, that's still millions of people getting addicted. And that's essentially what happened, that you just increase the the amount of people getting addicted, and that leads not, not just to higher overdose risk, but to them... Uh, going on to other drugs like similar opiates like heroin and, and whatnot. I mean, you you mentioned earlier a hundred million people who are suffering from one form or another of of chronic pain, and that's sort of an issue here, right? Is that the difference between prescribing a drug in an acute kind of case, like you have a surgery that you're expected to recover from? And I mean, I I, remember I had my my wisdom teeth out, right. and I was given something, some kind of pill with the opioids in it, but the 
expectation by everyone was like, whether I took that pill or not, within three or four days, I was going to feel completely better. Right. right. It wasn't intended to be a treatment for a long-term kind of condition. Right. And that's different from if you have chronic back pain and you're saying, okay, here's something that's not going to You could have a treatment that cures you in some sense, but if you're talking about a pain medicine that your back is still going to hurt and you're talking about long-term use of an addictive substance. So, yeah, I think there are two things to separate from that is like one is the acute pain element. Like I was also given, uh, I can't remember which opiate it was, but I was given opioids for my wisdom teeth when I got them taken out. And I remember, distinctly remember getting way more than I needed. So that's like one aspect of the problem. Yes. If you, Even if you're prescribed for acute pain and you only need them for three days, but you're prescribed 30 days, which used to be pretty standard, that's like, what are you going to do with those extra pills? A lot of people are like, I'm going to sell them because I like money. So Right. And, money and, is good. Yeah, money is generally good. So, And they'll sell them and they'll, or maybe they're, teenagers will find them in their parents' medicine cabinets and whatnot. So that's like one way that even acute pain played a role in in like getting these pills out there. The other thing is that with chronic pain, as you mentioned, I mean, these are people who are taking these drugs for years, maybe decades. And the research is very good on this, that the longer you are taking opioids, the more likely you are to become dependent and addicted to them. That's measured both in like how long you're taking them and the dose you're taking. So like the higher the dose, the more likely you are to become dependent and addicted. The longer you're taking them, the more likely you are to become dependent and addicted. And that's essentially what happened with a lot of these chronic pain patients. I mean, I don't want to say that like every chronic pain patient went this way because some of the best studies show that like it's about 8% of chronic uh, long-term opioid users will become addicted. So it's not like everyone on them. Some surveys suggest that number should be higher, but in general... The thing to pull away from that is that even if that 8% number is true, when tens of millions of people are getting these drugs, again, that's still millions of people getting addicted. Right. So it's it's when you philosophically sort of turn the page to say, well, we're going to use opioids to treat chronic pain. And you have a country where a lot of people right. have chronic pain, even if it's a relatively small share of them who get addicted, you're talking about a lot of people. Like, chronic pain in the United States is not a rare medical condition, and developing opioid dependence, if you're a long-term user, is also not—it's maybe a minority of people, but it's not all that rare either. Right. And I should say one thing about that's important to pull out about this is that the research on how effective opioids are for chronic pain is actually terrible. I mean, we know that opioids are good for acute pain. I think anybody who has taken them for, like— Acute pain can testify to that. They make you feel good for a bit. But for chronic pain, the studies that have come out suggest that they're not that good. Um, The evidence is very weak on this. And in general, that's because all medical treatments for chronic pain are pretty bad. Right. Um, they, you have to like do this on an individual case-by-case basis. Opioids might work for some people. They might be absolutely terrible for other people. But that's important to point out just because when pharmaceutical companies ran ahead and doctors b- bought into this idea that opioids are good for treating chronic pain, there really wasn't that any good evidence to support that. So in a big way, the like basis for this epidemic started could have been avoided if people just like picked up a study and like looked at it and believed it and, right. and demanded better evidence for what they were doing. Right. So part of it is, right, we have not ever found good solutions for chronic pain. Right. And part of it is that opioids are, are well known for sort of, as a lot of drugs are, creating a like a tolerance and a kind of a, a spiral of, right. of dosage that, that you need. So, you know, maybe for some period of time, this seems to be working well. But if you're you're not talking about a cure, you're talking about a treatment, 
and it's right. it's going to lose efficacy. Yeah, and not only that, there's actually some evidence that they might make your pain worse in the long run because they make you more sensitive to pain. Um, there's some research on this that that's kind of I mean it's it's weird, but like one way to understand this is the. Um, I've talked to one this, this addiction expert before, and the way that she she treats some patients, their pain actually gets better after they get off opioids because uh, after they get through the withdrawal, which is really painful, they realize that a lot of the pain they were feeling when they're, they're, they felt like, I need to take another pill, was actually the beginnings of withdrawal pain. And in that way, by not having that withdrawal pain anymore because they detoxed, their overall pain score improved. And like that's one way that opioids can actually make your pain worse is by making you dependent but other otherwise they also just seem to make you more more uh, sensitive to pain in general right and i mean i think you know anyone who you know like me gets into like a coffee addiction spiral right i mean you can relate right at a certain yes. point in your life this is like helping you wake up in the morning and you're like more alert and on point but then you know x years into it right. it's like you wake up in the morning and you're way worse it's actually a few weeks into it. You well, just, even better. You become, become tolerant to coffee. <laughs> right. It's really and, weird. You know, and so then it's like, yeah, it's still true that drinking your morning cup of coffee helps you get going in the morning, but that's because you've set your baseline right. to like such a shitty place. Yes, right? exactly. And I mean, I would imagine also with pain that there's a question of the underlying causes. Like for a while, I was having a painful issue with my left knee and I did a little physical therapy around it but I also was just sort of taught told instructed that like I have to not do certain things mm-hmm. or it's going to hurt my knee yeah this is a big thing with like chronic pain treatment is uh, I mean the way that people put it is that like you should learn to manage your pain and that can sound kind of cold like just deal with it is how a lot of pain patients but there are like actual strategies you can use like instead of Going out and trying to, like, if you're working on your garden, instead of, like, chopping down trees or planting as many, like, leaning over and, like, doing all sorts of things that can hurt your back, you just don't do as much of those things anymore. And, I I mean, that sounds something, like, as a young person, that would sound, like, horrible to me. Like, I don't want to get old. I don't want to have all these (laughs) random aches in my body. But, like, that's a reality of, like, growing older. And, like, that's something that you need to learn to manage. And if, I mean, if the alternative is taking these potentially deadly drugs, then... Maybe it's better to just cut back on like some of the activities you were doing before that can potentially hurt you and, and that sort of thing. Well, and I would imagine if the drugs do work, at least in the short term, right, that's going to encourage you right. to possibly keep doing things yeah. that are causing the injury. Yeah, that's that's another point. Like you can actually worsen your – like you pop a few pills and you think you're fine. You start chopping down trees and pretty soon your, your back hurts. Like the, the pills were off and your back hurts even worse than it did before because you were injuring it without even knowing it. Okay, so so what happened? We started getting this sort of large kind of like install base of people taking OxyContin and other new generation, slow-release pharmaceuticals, you know, under patent. They, they cost a good bit of money. They're making good money for pharmaceutical companies to overdose on them. You got to crush them up or, you know, do some right. kind of off-label use. And that was, I mean, I remember 10 years ago, that was a story, right? People were talking about Oxy was like hillbilly heroin. They were starting to see reports of people doing like robberies of pharmacies, things like that. Um, but then it seems like more recently things have kicked into 
higher gear right. of usage. There are two things that happened. One is the government cracked down on what they called pill mills, which are basically uh, like clinics where you could go in there, pay cash, and you would just get a bunch of bills. Not really that many questions asked. Um, so the government began shutting those down, locking up the doctors who were really doing shitty things. And I mean, if you're a pain patient at that point, the situation you're left with is, okay, well, I still have this pain. I still want these pills. I don't want to go through withdrawal. What do I do? And a lot of people started buying pills illicitly, like from the black market. And a lot of them went to heroin because it's way cheaper than pills on the black market. So that that's one thing. And in general, the, the other thing that happened is uh, some patients, I mean, over time, they're just naturally going to lose their prescriptions, regardless of a government crackdown. Or they might just say, I want a better high. And they'll naturally go to heroin that way. So that's what, what really happened. That's when this epidemic started getting really, really bad. Because not only did people start going to heroin, but like uh, drug dealers started like lacing the heroin with fentanyl, which is a very potent opioid. And some of the its analogs, fentanyl is actually a, a whole set of drugs that, that are much more potent than like traditional heroin and painkillers. Make your next move with Squarespace. Squarespace is a service that lets you make beautiful, unique websites with a great, unique domain name. And it lets you do it really, really easily. What you see is what you get design tools so that you don't need any kind of expertise in, in web design or HTML or, or anything like that. You just need to know how to use a computer. You can push, you can drag, you can use templates that are professionally designed, and you can make yourself really quickly and really easily a website that, that looks nice and is going to reflect well on you. I used to make websites for myself. That's how I got started in this industry. It used to be really, really hard. I, I had to ask friends to help me out with code and stuff like that. Squarespace, it, it makes all that old-time stuff look ridiculous. It means that anyone with any kind of business can have a, a great-looking website. And they're set up to support all different kinds of businesses. It's used by musicians, designers, artists, also restaurants. I mean, in, it's 2017. There's no excuse, whatever kind of business you're in, for not having a website. It's just that a lot of people don't realize how easy it can be with Squarespace. They've got 24-7 customer support that, that's award-winning. It's an all-in-one platform, so there's nothing to install or patch or upgrade. They'll help you get a, a domain name for yourself. You're going to love it. So if you use offer code WEEDS at checkout, you'll get 10% off your first purchase of a website and a domain. Uh, so that's Squarespace. Make your next move. So you had basically a diversion from sort of gray market abuses of the prescription drug system into both like a black market for the pills right. and just like heroin has existed for a while yes. as a black market commodity. I mean, did policymakers understand that that's what was going to happen when they cracked down? Yeah. Uh, it does seem like that some of them did. I've talked to some people in the drugstore's office before who have said that, like, yeah, they knew this was a problem, but they weren't just going to let doctors get away with what they were doing. And I think the the most generous way of putting it is that they were dealing, like, there's two sets of, of problems here. One is the stock of the stock of current opioid users, which those are the ones who, who got these pills and were already addicted and whatnot. But then there's the flow of opioid users, which is like the future generations that might get addicted. And the idea with cracking down on these pill mills was stopping more future generations of getting addicted. There's a good argument for that. If you stop doctors from giving these pills out, then fewer people are going to get on them, fewer people are going to get addicted. The problem is, is that with the stock of opioid users, there's still not enough drug treatment out there to to like get these people into care and get them to stop using opioids. So 
while they were doing all this prevention stuff, stopping all these pill mills, these patients were just left stranded. And because they were left stranded without adequate drug treatment, they resorted to illegal drugs and and just made the problem worse. So the so the the case on the on the flows issue is that there's a set of people who would not just wake up one day, go down to some corner somewhere and buy heroin, right. but who could very plausibly get on an addiction treadmill via the medical system. Yeah, and th- there's there's good studies that back up that that idea is like um one of the recent studies uh, showed that like three-fourths of people signing into drug treatment for opioids started on painkillers, which is a total switch from what it was in the 70s. Most people used to start on heroin. And uh, the CDC also has some data showing that if you are addicted to painkillers, you are 40 times more likely to be addicted to heroin. So, I mean, that the, there was a basis for that. The problem is, like I mentioned earlier, the current stock problem was not addressed at all. Right. So, so you have... Even in a sort of optimistic case, right? You could, we might look back 20 years from now and say, ultimately, this kind of worked, mm-hmm. but you would still have this like horrible, tragic interlude in which a population of already addicted people was being more or less deliberately like shunted into a more dangerous. Right. Situation. They're basically being left to die. And, and to, to sever the connection between, like, mainstream society and access to opioids. Right. You're taking people who were in the middle ground and, like, shoving them into this uh, incredibly life-threatening. Right. It's not because there's no solution for this stock problem. I mean, the there's, there's definitely solutions for being drug treatment, spending way more on it as a country. I mean, the the Surgeon General last year released a report that on addiction, and it found that only 10% of people who have a drug abuse disorder, um, only 10% of these people actually get specialty treatment. That's a very bad number. Mm-hmm. If we had that for like heart disease or diabetes, we would be seriously concerned about what we're doing in terms of healthcare. Um, so these people need care and we could spend way more money on giving them that care, but we're just not right now. So, okay, so yeah, then that gets to the to the next question. I mean, one difference is that everybody, more or less, who gets diagnosed with cancer seeks treatment right. for for the cancer. Um, it's it's not the case that everyone who's addicted to drugs is like trying to get treatment right. in, in a in a clear way. But what is the sort of mismatch between demand and, and availability for for good treatments out there. Yeah. So there's there's a bunch of reasons. One of the big ones is obviously stigma. I mean there's there's like there's still stigma around addiction. Some people still see it as a moral failure. So like submitting to like needing care is seen like you're admitting a moral failure sure. and something like that. But the people the, don't want to like come out to friends and family and coworkers right. and say, I'm addicted to heroin right. and I need help. They want to try to do what they can to sort of get along in life. Right. But the the other aspect, which is really big, is the then the Surgeon General report really emphasizes is that we just do not have enough treatment facilities around. If I'm a doctor in West Virginia, which has one of the worst opioid problems, and I'm like, I need to get this patient off painkillers. I don't want to have this patient anymore. It, in a lot of rural areas, I'm not going to have a treatment, a nearby treatment center to refer them to, much less like an effective treatment center because there are all these places that like demand abstinence and and there's no good good evidence for just like totally quitting cold turkey opioids. But there is good treatment uh, in terms of like medications provided and whatnot. I might not have a good 
referral for them to get them into treatment at all. Like there just might not be any options. That's a big thing. And like there are multiple causes for that. One of that is that addiction specialists in general are paid less. So if you're a doctor or an upcoming med school student, you're probably, unless you care about this issue, you're going to be less incentivized to actually sure. join the addiction uh, field. And a bunch of these those kinds of factors come together to really make it so there's just a severe shortage, uh, particularly in rural areas, for addiction care. So what does what does effective treatment look like broadly? For opioids, it's there are these medications, which essentially what these medications do is and uh, is stave off your withdrawal. So you might take them. Some people only take them for a few years. Some people will take them for the rest of their lives. Where basically you don't have uh, this these cravings anymore that you used to have for these opioids, and just by doing that, people are m- much less likely to actually seek out painkillers and heroin. Because a lot of the time, they're doing it not to get high. There's like this this phrase in the heroin world where you say you're getting straight because it's not even a pleasure thing anymore. It's just you want to keep off the withdrawal. So that's why these medications are really effective. They just make it so you don't have to worry about that withdrawal anymore. And you can pair that with like traditional psychotherapy. You can pair that with NA sessions and whatever, whatever social support. NA is Narcotics Anonymous. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Whatever social support group will, will work for you. But the bottom line is that these medications are really effective and there are like severe uh, restrictions on methadone is one of them. And you can only get that by going to a clinic uh, twice a day to get your methadone uh, once or twice a day. So, that's obviously not accessible to a lot of people who have jobs and demanding schedules and, and whatnot. And then buprenorphine, which is Suboxone, it's, it's, uh, you can take it home, but there are restrictions from, by the federal government on how much doctors can prescribe of this. So that's like another way that this, this drug is restricted. And when you like add up these barriers up, that's, that's how you start getting to the point where like not only is it the case that we don't have enough drug treatment in general, we also don't have the best drug treatment, which is these, these medications. And, and so you're talking about people who in many cases are originally in this pipeline because of chronic pain issues. You probably also want some kind of treatment right. for that, something non-pharmaceutical. Right. Yeah, you can get into like the the root causes of addiction. A lot one of the big ones is obviously this pain. Like a lot of these people got addicted because they started seeking treatment for their pain. And this is another thing that our healthcare system is really bad at. There are treatments for like if I if I wanted to list the treatments for pain, I would uh, list some alternative medicine things like acupuncture and chiropractor, and there's like mixed evidence on those. But there's also stuff like just physical exercises, uh, teaching you about how to manage your pain, like we talked earlier. These things are very expensive um, for a lot of people, and they might not they might not be covered by health insurance. And even if they are covered by health insurance, a lot of people don't have health insurance. So the problem gets worse there because people just this is one of the reasons that doctors are so quick to resort to opioids because they offered a cheap, easy answer to this pain problem that because these patients couldn't get into the more complicated but perhaps better treatments for their pain. Yeah, I mean, you know, in in like in Silicon Valley, right, in, in the business world, there's a big obsession with with ideas. It's not just like, does this idea have merit, but is it scalable? Right. And, you know, I know my, my mother-in-law is a physical therapist, and, you know, I think she, she's good at her job. She helps people. But a basic problem with the kind of work that she does is that it doesn't scale. Right. It's like her in a room with one person working on some exercises, working on some strategies for recovery and pain management. Whereas like a factory, if it has a pill, they can you can make a right. lot. 
yes. right? And you can hand them out to people quickly and 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 stuff like that. So, you know, from an insurance company perspective, from a dollars and cents perspective, it just looks so much better to to push people toward a pill-based solution to almost any kind of problem rather than toward a, like, human being face-to-face working with you across multiple sessions over a period of months. Right. Right? Unless you have some very strong counter-incentive, the basic operation of an insurance payment framework or just a doctor's compensation schedule is that if there's any sort of plausible scenario in which writing someone a prescription is the right answer, that's the one you're going to want to reach for. Right. And doctors will complain about this all the time, that they don't have enough time with patients. And one of the ways to solve that problem is obviously just writing a prescription to people. It seems like a really easy solution. You don't have to do all the other complicated stuff that run all these these tests and run all these like physical exercises for pain that, that might be necessary. And then how, how much of this has to do with just sort of, I think Americans are pretty well known in the developed world for a sort of poor state of health right. in general from from a lifestyle perspective and is that is that one of the reasons why this issue seems so much more severe here in the United States or were there very different approaches to prescriptions or like yeah. like wh- why is this such an american problem i think the the biggest one when i talk to experts about this is definitely just that we let drug companies advertise these drugs more easily than like Europe and Canada do hmm. according to the first amendment and this I personally find this very stupid but the first amendment supposedly protects commercial speech okay um so because of that the FDA and uh, other regulators have a hard time really clamping down on these op- uh, opioids and other drugs and what that means is that these pharmaceutical companies can really convince doctors in all sorts of like really egregious ways marketers will often like set up meetings with doctors and lunches and buy them gifts and things like that and studies show that when you do that the doctors are more likely to prescribe the product that that you're trying to sell them so like that's one of the biggest things the other stuff uh, the other part of this is that in general, it seems like America has, um, I don't know how good the the research on this is particular, but like the, there's this like general despair trend where uh-huh. uh, these deaths of despair have gone up, like not just opioids. Opioids are a big one, but also suicides and alcohol-related deaths have gone up in the past few years. So it seems like something is going on there where people are just in general suffering more and resorting to drugs. When I ask people about this, you can literally get into every issue on the planet about sure. like how to address this. Like they'll say like universal basic income sure, for sure. health. I mean, like literally every issue imaginable. But like that seems to be a big part of it is that in general people are feeling uh, this this level of despair that perhaps is not present in other countries. But the but the the marketing both sort of direct to doctors and also I mean in America we have you turn on like yes. cable news during the day as people in the media often do, right. but the the other people watching cable news in the middle of the day are senior citizens, uh, maybe maybe people who are unemployed for some reason or another. And there's a tremendous amount of pharmaceutical yes. advertising, like direct to consumers, uh, which I think you don't have, at least not in the same extent, in, in most other developed no, countries. No, m- most other developed countries will like very strictly regulate that. Some countries ban it altogether. Uh, I, actually, Iceland recently just started doing a bunch of— Iceland has one of the biggest drug problems in Europe, and it really started cracking down on on drugs, uh, doing all sorts of like different programs for it. And one of the first things they did is just 
like banned uh, these kinds of pharmaceutical advertisements. And these are dangerous, addictive drugs. I don't think people think of them in the same way as they might think of like tobacco, but we, we don't allow tobacco to be advertised anymore because we have this, it's from a legal settlement. There's no, technically no law allowing this because like I mentioned, the First Amendment protects tobacco companies from right. advertising. So it's like a giant legal settlement with a bunch of states that stop tobacco companies from advertising, but we just don't have that for other drugs, even though they're just as addictive and just uh, potentially just as dangerous when, when a lot of people are taking them. So a sentiment that I sort of hear uh, a fair amount on, on social media is a kind of, I don't know exactly how to put it, but a sort of like liberal eye-rolling at the national response to this opioid crisis, because there's a sense that when we had a crack epidemic in the, in the 80s, or maybe even heroin in, in the 70s, that the perception was that the drugs were being used by people of color. And so the political response was incredibly punitive. And this was like the war on drugs rhetoric, and to an extent, the reality of, of the growth and incarceration. Whereas now we have a problem that's impacting white people, and suddenly we're like, we're all touchy-feely, and Senate Republicans are asking for more opioid treatment money. Right. Um, is that correct, that this is the dynamic that's playing out? It's generally correct that more white Americans are being affected by this and like we're about crack. Like there's, yeah, way more white Americans have taken, um, are are like addicted to opioids than black Americans. Because when you said like West Virginia, New Hampshire, I mean, these are some of the whitest yes, states. Yes. And actually states that don't have a lot in common otherwise. And one of the sad reasons for that being the case is because doctors are more likely, that some studies have shown this, that doctors are more likely to think that black people can resist pain better due to all sorts of like racial stereotypes and whatnot. So they are less likely to prescribe their black patients painkillers. So and, they may have been protected from bad medical practice yes. by racist. countervailing <laughs> racist medical practice. Right, exactly. So Hooray. That, that's, a, that's a horrible part of this. But in, in general, the way I look at it is Chris Christie, who's like one of the better Republicans on this issue, he'll often talk about how he had a friend who suffered from addiction and died. And the way I look at it is like, if you're Chris Christie and you're a white man, you're more likely to have white friends just because of residential segregation. So you're more likely to see an epidemic that's affecting white people than you are an epidemic that's affecting black people. So if you see that, you're more likely to be compassionate for the people in your social circle. And then you're more likely to call for drug treatment. So it's not necessarily like racism like these. I, I'm, I mean, I should say that they're almost certainly is some racism involved, like just direct prejudice that you you should just lock these people up and for whatever reason. But in general, it seems like like people, there's a, a compelling argument that people are just reacting to their social circle suffering more in the way you would expect them to react to their social circle suffering right. more. And then, I mean, conversely, I mean, in parallel with this sort of, uh, before it really like burst through into the mainstream, as this this opioid problem was growing, I mean, you did have a growing political right. push to, I mean, to more decriminalization and legalization of, of marijuana, to less jail time for nonviolent drug right. offenders, right? I mean, like, people really put an effort into changing the national policy conversation. Yeah, that, that's another aspect of this that's, like, kind of, like, dilutes that liberal narrative that this is just because white people are affected, blah, blah, blah. It really is the case that, like, especially due to the Great Recession, states wanted to cut back on their prison rates. And one of the things they did was 
say, okay, we shouldn't lock up as many as these nonviolent drug offenders. So in that way, it's like the victims of the opioid epidemic are just some of the first beneficiaries of these policies. And it certainly looks bad because the mass incarceration problem is mostly uh, affecting disproportionately black Americans. And yet the these white victims are the ones that are benefiting first. It, it, that like It's definitely not a good look. Right, but it's it's like at the timing of a yes. somewhat pre-existing policy trend exactly. is, now, is now helping people. So this makes me wonder, I mean, you wrote a, a piece about how this epidemic has changed your thinking about treatment of currently right. illegal drugs. Right. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Because I, I do think a lot of us has sort of moved from the throwing people in jail for smoking pot is dumb mm-hmm. to like, maybe all drugs should be legal. Right. And now it's like, well, it's probably good that you like can't buy heroin at 7-Eleven, right. right? So yeah, I should preface this by saying that like this doesn't, what I'm about to say doesn't really apply to marijuana. I think marijuana is such a relatively harm, not not totally harmless, but it's not harmful enough to like warrant this, the kind of public outcry you sometimes see about it. So like, as far as like legalizing that, I don't, I mean, sure, whatever. In terms of the other harder drugs, if you talk to people who support the drug war, the first thing they will tell you, uh, the, like the best argument they will give you is if you legalize these drugs, then companies will sell them, market them in very, very bad ways that will get people hooked. And then on top of getting people hooked, people will die. And we've seen this time and time. We saw this with tobacco companies. We've seen this with alcohol companies. I mean, they it still blows my mind that we see like so many alcohol advertisements during the Super Bowl when kids are watching. It's like not the ideal public health thing. So with the opioid epidemic, we've seen that risk that they're talking about actually very prominently. These opioid companies were allowed to disperse their drugs more freely, and they were allowed to market their drugs more freely. And exactly what they warned about happened. A lot of people got addicted, and a lot of people have died and have continued dying. And there there were things that federal regulators and state regulators could have done about this. Uh, the DA has the power to cap how many opioids are produced in, in the U.S., uh, it did not use that power at all. In fact, if you look at the DEA files, they will openly admit that like companies lobbied them and then they raised the cap because right. companies lobbied them. And like the FDA had the power to like really crack down these drugs, like make the labels harsher, say like, hey, this drug is dangerous. Tell doctors about these uh, the, the risks to these drugs. And they didn't really do that for, they've started doing that now, but they didn't for years and years and years. I saw that, and like, I used to be a big advocate for drug legalization, like legalizing all drugs. I thought, well, the war on drugs has failed. It hasn't like, uh, I mean, the typical liberal arguments for it. But after seeing this epidemic, I'm now like convinced that like, if you look at the warning that drug warriors gave is actually right. If you let these companies market their drugs, if you let them like sell them for profit and, and just let them go free, you will see a lot of people getting addicted to these drugs and dying. And, and that's really what, what drove me away from supporting legalization. I mean, there's a paradox in the American legal framework, which is that you can make heroin illegal. So like to buy heroin, to sell heroin, to possess heroin, all that stuff is a crime. But you can't make it illegal to put a mass market television advertising campaign right. for OxyContin on the air. Right. When the drug is legal, anything goes. Yeah, you open the floodgates. It's, and, I mean, that's not like a fact of nature, right? <laughs> like you could, I, I mean, it's a question of constitutional jurisprudence, but like in a different country, like you could create a legal 
category in which it is not a crime to be in possession of some kind of substance, but also where you can't do any marketing around it. If we were like a European country that's like friendlier to bigger, tougher regulations on companies, then uh, I could see my stance maybe shifting a bit. Um, and in general, I think we can still decriminalize personal possession. I don't think we should be locking up drug users. Like the, I mean, the cliche is that they need treatment, not jail. And that's sure. definitely true. But like America, for all sorts of reasons, just doesn't seem capable of really regulating these drug companies in the way that would be ideal to public health. So we just shouldn't let them do it. Like a, a blanket ban on them doing anything is way easier than trying to get into the messy regulatory framework, especially when we have these constitutional issues about commercial speech. And, and it is true that for a, a lot of things that aren't drugs, we take for granted that you can have severe restrictions on what you're allowed to produce and sell as a business without the kind of like harsh end-user type punishments, right? So like like the automobile industry is very regulated. There's only certain ways you can make a car. You right. can't sell a car without seatbelts. You know, you can't sell a car whose headlights don't work. You also will get ticketed if you're driving unsafely. But there's not some like crazy prison system built around, you know, what people right. are doing with stuff they buy. It, it's done on the front end, right? That it's like, you got to build cars and like these big factories, if you tried to make one that was not following the rules, like, you would get shut down. Right. And, and you could, so you can do that, right? Like, you can, it doesn't have to be legal to have, like, the heroin plant and, like, the heroin shop and stuff like that to be much less harsh on addicts who are found in possession of, of some kind of narcotics. Right, yeah, that, that's definitely true. I mean, I mean, I think that's a great example of this. It's like you can definitely separate these issues out. If you're just arresting someone because he happens to have heroin, that that's not a good strategy. But if you're arresting somebody who's mass-producing it in their backyard or something along those lines, or like somebody who's a bigger company who's trying to like sell heroin. I mean, this would be really weird if a company was trying to like mass produce and sell heroin. But, but I mean, people forget it's like that's what like what legalization yes. would really mean. Yes, would be that heroin is like vodka. Yeah, and this is not. I mean, we're seeing this exact same thing with marijuana right now. Like big companies are getting interested, and like we see articles all the time about like tobacco and alcohol companies trying starting to get involved in the marijuana market, and like. Again, with marijuana, it's not a dangerous enough drug to really, for, in my perspective, care that much that, that this is happening. It's not going to cause a mass overdoses or anything like that. With other drugs, it would lead right. to those issues. Right, right, right. All right. Uh, well, thank you very much. Thanks to our producer, uh, Peter Leonard. Thanks to, uh, to everybody uh, who was who listening. Uh, we're going to be back uh, next week with Ezra and Sarah. Hope you will uh, check us out uh, on, our, on our Weeds Facebook group. Uh, recommend the podcast to your friends, your family, your neighbors, uh, anyone you, you meet at the Methadone Clinic, uh, wh wherever podcasts and or drug treatment uh, may be found. And we'll, uh, we'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.